sometimes a person from the audience would come up to me and say, wow, your guitar sounds amazing. What, <laughs> what kind of guitar are you using? If you have a really good meal, do you go up to the chef and go, wow, what kind of oven were you using? That food was incredible. It's like, yeah, it helped, but I kind of worked on this. You know? <laughs> what kind of guitar are you using? 10 years of practice. And Hello and welcome to Underscore. This is our first episode. Underscore is a podcast that explores the modern world of music from a musician's point of view. Here, we debate the intersections of art and life, share our best music picks, and invite cutting-edge artists to our round table to see what makes them tick. I'm Thomas Kotcheff, a composer and pianist here in L.A. And I'm Chrysanthi Tan, a composer, violinist, singer-songwriter, also in L.A. We are both music makers, music obsessors, and creators in a multitude of genres. And speaking of genre, you may be wondering what sort of music can you expect on this show? And the truth is, genre is sort of always the elephant in the room here at Underscore. See, Thomas and I are both classically trained, but this is not a classical podcast. But it's not not a classical podcast either. Here, we dive into anything from film scores and sweeping instrumentals to electronic, experimental, and beyond. You won't find Top 40 here, but Philip Glass is fair game, and so is Daft Punk and Jay Dilla. We're interested in innovation, the music that lights up our brains, the music that moves us. Today, we're going to debate a musical viral video making the internet rounds, one that conjures the mystique of expensive instruments. Can we tell the difference between a cheap instrument and an expensive one? Does it truly even matter? Well, we're also going to leave you with our favorite musical discovery from this week in our segment called Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, and Something Blue. But before we get to those exciting things, we are going to talk to a guest who started out as a metal musician and suddenly transitioned into a contemporary classical composer. Apparently, this is not uncommon, so Sean Hayward is going to talk to us about the surprising similarities between metal and classical, among other things. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, Sean, you are a composer-performer who plays classical, electric, and fretless guitar. Your music reflects a lot of diverse influences, like Javanese gamelan, Balkan folk music contemporary classical guitar, extreme metal, and ancient tuning systems. You just released an EP, The Black Moon. It's very good. And you are my duo partner and friend. You got to tell us, what was the name of your first metal band back in the day? My metal band back in the day when I was in high school was called Midnight Requiem. Yeah, a bit, a bit on the cheesy side. I feel like metal bands, their names are always so... Nighttime is involved in quite a Night, number of those yeah, names. Like, that doesn't actually strike me as that cheesy. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. It's well suited to the style, I guess, we were playing at that time. So, okay. How did this transition happen? Um, I think it happened for me in a similar way to a lot of other guitarists. I was playing a lot of electric guitar and playing a lot of metal at the time, and then I heard a record, actually, from William Geyser called Echoes of the Old World. He's a classical guitarist. Okay. And it was mostly like Balkan and Turkish folk influenced classical guitar arrangements. And at that time, I kind of decided that I wanted to head more in that direction. And I started picking up classical guitar. I ended up entering at UC Santa Cruz to study classical guitar or so. 
And do you feel like the other students that you met when you started your college education were also similar to you, or were they just all sorts of different backgrounds? In terms of classical guitar, it's remarkably similar, the backgrounds. It seems like the vast majority of classical guitarists I meet originally started as electric guitar players, and a lot of them involved in playing metal of one kind or another. Either metal or video game music, really. What? You know, why metal? Part of the reason, I mean, classical guitar is a lot different than many other classical instruments regarding kind of the culture surrounding it and regarding the way that people learn and how it's approached. But I think the reason why so many metal guitarists find themselves transitioning into classical music is because of, one, kind of an emphasis on virtuosity, an emphasis on kind of technical ability on an instrument, as well as um, being not so focused on improvisation. Everything is kind of exactly set in stone what you are going to play. Of course, there's interpretation, there's aesthetic decisions about what kind of music you are going to play on those instruments, but I think they have a lot in common in that regard. And with musical style, is there an intersection, and who is doing that intersection right now? Um, with musical style, I would say there's quite a large intersection. Um, I think part of the reason, especially with more contemporary classical music, is kind of this tendency to avoid a clear tonal center, the shift away from tonality and this shift towards higher degrees of rhythmic complexity, the influence of electronic music and exploring kind of further reaches of sound and what's possible. I think metal and contemporary classical music have followed parallel paths to a great degree uh, in that regard. And some composers who I know of who are kind of highly active in that field are a good friend of mine, Nick Vassallo, who is an electric guitarist uh, and vocalist in the band Oblivion. And they're actually a really successful death metal band, but he's also a professor in composition currently. And there are a lot of other people. Ulrich Krieger, who is actually my advisor as a doctoral candidate at uh, California Institute of the Arts. He's heavily involved in these kind of fusions between extreme metal and uh, contemporary classical music. Do you have any it. like recommendations for people who are not really into metal, but they're curious? Yeah, they're rated G metal. Rated G for the average listener. Well, I think a lot of people are more familiar with metal than they think. I mean, it's not uncommon to hear things that at one point in time would be termed metal in grocery stores. Now, I've heard you know, Black Sabbath at one point in time was considered to be metal. Every person's going to be different in terms of discovering where their aesthetic preferences lie. Some people are going to be more drawn to black metal. I highly recommend checking out uh, In the Nightside Eclipse by Emperor. This is one of my favorite albums ever. People who are going to be more interested in death metal might be starting with the band Death. This is, um, clearly there's a lot for us to check out. We're gonna put some of your suggestions on a playlist definitely. for people to be able to check out, because I definitely want to check some of these out too. <laughs> for, for a lot of people, actually one of my highest recommendations would be to check out the band Opeth. 
always one of my favorites. They're a Swedish melodic death metal group that combines a lot of elements of progressive music, of folk music, with kind of more death metal sensibilities. So you also have training in gamelan, and how does that come into your life and into your music? When I was at UC Santa Cruz, we had a visiting composer, Bill Alves, came up, who's actually a professor at Claremont College now, and he runs a gamelan program there. He was a visiting composer who wrote a piece for two electric guitars in Balinese gamelan. And as I was an electric guitarist, my teacher recommended me to be one of the guitarists to play that piece. And that was actually the first time I had ever heard Indonesian music or gamelan or anything like that. And it kind of slowly, bit by bit, took over my life in a way. And now I've been playing gamelan for almost 10 years. Now I'm mostly involved in kind of writing music that combines Javanese gamelan with other sound worlds in one way or another, including actually, uh, including death metal. A couple of years ago, I decided that I wanted to create kind of a large scale work for a full central Javanese gamelan with death metal band. Love it. And so <laughs> I decided to begin working on that. I wrote about a third of the album while I was here. And then I actually, after receiving a scholarship from the Indonesian government, I was living there for about a year and I wrote most of the rest of the album while I was there and a little bit once I came back. But I essentially was writing music using just traditional Javanese forms. And then after the fact, going back and seeing how I could relate the world of death metal or black metal in many cases to the sound world of Central Javanese Gamelan. And I was working with a lot of great people. I think the group ended up having 18 people by the end of it. Mm -hmm. And it was a little controversial, huh? There were some funny responses, certainly. After the first time I played it, my teacher, Pakchoko Waluyo, was in the audience, and I was kind of terrified of what his reaction would be. He's a very, you know, amazing composer, amazing gamelan musician, just miles of knowledge beyond where I'm at or probably ever will be at. And like, just imagine a stage with like 18 musicians playing highly traditional instruments that are like very old, very expensive with- <laughs> Quite loud. <laughs> with amps. And, mm -hmm. and then Sean in front shredding. <laughs> but after, after the concert, I came up to my teacher and I said, you know, I'm so sorry, I just had to do this this one time. I'll never do it again, I promise. And his reaction was just kind of, oh, well, do you want to perform it at the World Music Festival? <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of found out after that that he actually really liked the collaboration. Um, and he's a very open-minded person himself. Yeah. I've really found that the whole Indonesian community has been really welcoming of this kind of experimentation. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because a video of that performance at the World Music Festival subsequently ended up being put on YouTube. And another 
gamelan instructor who is not Indonesian, a gamelan instructor who is a white guy who I will leave unnamed, responded to this video saying, I can't believe Bakjoko has to deal with this. He deserves so much better from his students. Like, he's such an amazing teacher and musician. I can't believe that he has to put up with his students doing this kind of horrible thing. And immediately, as soon as he wrote that, like, all of of these gamelan musicians and members of the Indonesian community start writing back to him saying, Pak Joko actually specifically requested that these be performed. He's very supportive of his students who are doing other kinds of collaborations, doing other kinds of music. But overall, I haven't actually met that many people who are opposed to this kind of collaboration regarding Gamelan. That's awesome. Because I know you are also a white guy. I yes, am. Yes. <laughs> Playing Indonesian music, which is an interesting position to be in because you have to kind of toe a cultural line and know, like, you know, just what you can and can't do. But it's not about can and can't. Like, cultural appropriation is a whole thing. And I know you feel really strongly about it and... Like, what's the wrong way to approach gamelan if you're, like, a white person? Um, I mean, for me, regarding cultural appropriation, the important thing is actually having a commitment to continue learning about the tradition that you're actually engaging with mm-hmm. and to continue speaking with people who are from that culture and natively making music in that way and making sure that there is kind of an understanding and that you're not trying to push your own role yeah. in that sense. So for me, kind of the wrong way to go about it is, I mean, it's hard to say because so much of it comes down to aesthetic preferences. But for me, the really clear moment where it's unacceptable is just to take things without attempting to understand them. Yeah. Hear something and think, oh, that sounds cool. I'll do something kind of like that. And then saying, oh, my work is influenced by gamelan without actually like trying to foster any kind of deeper understanding. Mm Mm-hmm. Which a lot of composers do, Mm -hmm. do that. And I think it's great, you know, you speak Indonesian, like you've lived there for a long time. And I mean, not that these things are what gives you quote unquote cred, but I will say that you do have an ongoing commitment to actually understanding and being part of a culture. And I think that actually is a big part of it too, is just continuing to actually promote interest in the traditional music as opposed opposed to just your own work. Yeah. So for me, it's really important that if I'm going to be working with Gamelan, it's not just in the service of improving my own music or making my own music more interesting or more quote-unquote exotic or something like that. The important thing is actually that it's in the service of Gamelan as much as it's in the service of myself. Yeah. So a big part of my work or life is trying to get more people involved in making Javanese or Indonesian music in general. Before we wrap it up, we got to ask you some of our lightning round questions. So what these are, are basically we just want to ask the same, the guests every time, the same six questions. So what genre do you write? I write quasi-minimalist music for an Indonesian haunted house. Awesome. This is, that's fantastic. (laughs) I'll go with that. Um, Do you have any performance rituals? I really like to brush my hair before performances. Honestly, it just calms me down. Usually I only brush my hair in my car, which makes my car look terrible, but yeah. 
Um, what is a modern tool that's extremely helpful to your practice? Well, I just bought an Amazon Echo. <laughs> not to be doing a product plug. I promise they're not paying me for that. But it's amazing because now I don't actually have to like use my phone as a metronome or my actual metronome. I don't worry about that. I just tell Alexa to just play a certain amount of beats per minute and that takes care of it for me. That's amazing. So, um, What's a failure that turned out for the best? A failure that turned out for the best. I remember having a classical guitar recital in which I broke a nail immediately before it. And, and this is a big deal for guitarists. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it destroyed me. I mean, every time I used my index finger, it was just a bah! sound. It was the worst thing that's ever happened. And it convinced me to get fake nails. So I think that turned yeah. out for the best because I haven't worried about it since. That's amazing. I love it. Um, something besides music that you're obsessed with right now. Uh, that's a difficult one. Breakfast tacos. We go with breakfast tacos. Pretty much want to eat those every meal of the day. Very L.A. to say that. Yeah. Very L.A. Um, And last but not least, a piece of art that changed your life. This is terrible because I can't actually remember the person's name who is responsible for it. But it it changed your life. But it changed (laughs) my life. Okay. The the Jujun Institute, which was actually a public, to a certain extent, art project based in San Francisco, and there was a documentary made about it called The Institute, and it kind of changed the way that I view art or what art can be and how people engage with it and how people engage with the world around them. Awesome. Well, thanks, Sean, for chatting with us. Where can the people find you and your videos and your music? You can find me and my videos and my music at haywardsound.com or on Bandcamp or on Spotify or anywhere else you get your music, pretty much. Awesome. Fantastic. call this section counterpoint and it's where we discuss and debate a hot topic relevant to the music world perhaps something a little controversial this week we're talking about the price tag of instruments does it really matter so here's how the topic came up about a month ago i saw a video on facebook with 1.5 million views in which a violinist esther abrami is demonstrating four different violin bows So the first one is $500, the second one is $40,000, and then there's $90,000, and then there's $160,000, just for the bow. So shout out to Classic FM and Esther Abrami for posting that video. So then a friend of mine, who is not a musician, sent me the video, and he wrote in a message, wow, I didn't know it made such a difference. And it just got me thinking, does it really make a difference? What do you think? Well, I'm going to go from the piano perspective, which is my world, and I'm going to say definitely yes. But it makes a difference for the person playing and not for the receiver. The receiver just listens to music, and if it's, you know, played well, it's played well. But the higher quality the tool, the easier it is to play the way you want to. That's a really succinct way of putting that. But as a pianist, like, when you watch other performers, can you tell, since you have a trained ear? That, that it's their fault or the piano's fault? 
sort of, but can you tell the difference between like, I don't know, a cheaper piano and a more expensive piano from the audience? Yeah, I mean, I would say that as a in the audience, when you when you see a great piano, you, when you say C's, like you know the great piano brands, Steinway, Fazioli, Blusendorfer. When you see one of those, then you're like, oh, if it sounds bad, you know it's the person playing his fault. <laughs> While if you see like a really janky piano brand on stage, you're like, oh, it just didn't sound that great, but maybe they couldn't control the instrument because it's not a good instrument. So sometimes, do you play on a bad instrument just because you think you're going to make some mistakes? Just, <laughs> just to hide up, just, to hide. Just so they're like, oh, don't worry, it's it's their crap piano. Exactly, yeah. Like, can I get the bad one in here, please? Yeah. <laughs> I request, yeah. What do you think? Deshaun, does it make a difference for you? For me, there's a lot of different factors that kind of come into play, so it's kind of yes and no. I mean, in that video, it's a violin bow. It's like, this is going to be affected by the rosin. It's going to be affected by the violin she's using. It's going to be affected by the fact of, does she know which bow is which? Mm -hmm. Does she know that she's playing a bow that is $160,000? Oh, you should blind her. You should blind test her. I would be better as a blind test. Wow. See, you just cracked it. And that is, no, you bring up a great point. Yeah. Keep going. Coming from like a classical guitar perspective, a big part of the difference is volume and projection. It's just that with guitars, a lot of times the struggle is finding an instrument that's loud enough, especially if you're playing with other performers. So the difference between a really nice classical guitar and a really cheap classical guitar is often actually just really the degree to which it's able to project sound. So it can really make a difference in that regard, but in other circumstances it doesn't. Is that mostly size, though? Like, would a bigger instrument project better? Not necessarily. Okay. Okay. It's about construction of the bracings. It's about the kind of wood that's being actually used on the guitar, et cetera. So the better the craft, the better you're going to sound potentially. Yeah, potentially. I would say that's true. But I would also say it's much, much more important to actually know what you're doing on an instrument than to have Have the the nicest instrument. instrument. Yes, that's like what my whole pet peeve with um, with putting so much value on the cost of instruments, on the value of instruments, because, you know, you could give a beginner a Stradivarius, which is like the most expensive violin brand in the world. Um, you could give a beginner a Stradivarius, but they're not going to that doesn't mean they're going to sound like anything other than a beginner. You know there's, what I mean? There's an interesting thing. I used to have this experience after playing like classical guitar recitals, sometimes a person from the audience would come up to me and say, wow, your guitar sounds amazing. What, <laughs> what kind of guitar are you using? Like, like, if you have a really good meal, do you go up to the <laughs> chef and go, wow, what kind of oven were you using? That food was incredible. It's like, yeah, it helped, but I kind of worked on this. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> what kind of guitar are you using? 10 years of practice <laughs> and every day for four hours. No. So um, where do you stand on it? Well, I am so torn because I'm notoriously, like, not a gearhead. Like, I'm just, I don't want to say, like, morally against <laughs> caring about it too much. But it might also be willful ignorance of me just, like, wanting a bunch of tools to work. And, I mean, I really think what you put into it matters more. And when it comes to gear, like recording and mics, I think it's also very important. But I think what goes in is much more important. And like I took a recording engineering class and the gearhead instructor even was like, you know, you could have the best preamps, but you know what matters most is like if your musicians are well rehearsed and if what you're recording is better. Because at the end of the day, like that is going to matter more than, you know, whether you 
edited perfectly or had the best preamp. That so said, it does not matter. Well, but, but that it does. said, <laughs> when I was when I was at in college, I had the great fortune of getting to play on a violin that was on loan to me from the collection, mm-hmm. and that was a quarter million dollar instrument, and. I just sounded better on it. And you were a little angel. <laughs> just floating away. It was away such a pleasure to play. But I think what you said, Thomas, at the beginning was like spot on because it made a huge difference for me as a player. It just felt more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I could tell that it was just a better instrument. Like I didn't have to work as hard to get the same sort of tone. So it made a difference to me. It may have been psychological, partially which, you know, would have upped my confidence, which maybe would have made me play better. But if I asked, you know, my, my mom or something in the audience, I don't think she would have been able to tell the difference mm. at all. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm like in, in, two, in two ways on this, on this one. Yeah, so really the video should be redone where they test the musicians out. Don't you think? With, like, where they with, test the station. audience out. Oh, really? You, oh, you mean where they... I, I would say like his idea, which is like you just the do... Blind, a, like, oh, you mean test. double blind. Five pianos yeah. where it's like, no, no, just the, the instrument. And I can go, oh, that's the better piano because oh, it yeah, feels yeah. better in my fingers, you know? Well, um, so have you heard about the violin? Okay, in the violin world, there have been numerous experiments with testing old like Stradivarius instruments with newer made instruments. And sort of the way people feel about this generally is like, oh, the old instruments are the best, like the Stradivarius, um, Guarneri, like they're hundreds of years old, they're in museums, and like new instruments are thought to be worse. But they'd actually double blind tested some professional, some concert violinists. Love it. And unanimous, like not unanimously, but they did this three different times in different halls. The new instruments won. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But still, some of the musicians themselves still said that they would prefer, despite having preferred the new instruments when they were blinded, they actually would still pick the old instrument because of the history and the this and the that. Like, it's it's like an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good note to wrap up on. Sean, thank you for coming in and joining us thank in this conversation. Yeah, thanks. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you. Does the monetary value of an instrument make a difference to you as a listener or performer? Do you have a lot of opinions, questions, or just want to give us your favorite song to feature? If so, we are at underscore FM on all social media. And we also have an awesome little Facebook group called Underscore Society. It's a closed group, but anyone is invited to join, so we will approve you ASAP. And you can find that by just looking up Underscore Society on Facebook or following the link in the show notes. Before we wrap up every episode, we want to leave you with something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue, where we share our current musical obsessions. We'll be sharing something old, blast from the past, something new, recent things, something borrowed, a remix, idea we're borrowing, a cover, and something blue. Up to your interpretation. First, we have something old. Yes, and this is my pick for this week. This is an album from, well, it's not super old, 2009. Eight years. That feels That's kind of, old. It's kind of old. Yeah. And the way I stumbled upon this, uh, I don't even know how I, how I got here, just through random internet searches. Um, I was looking at whale song online and listening to whale calls, and people have been um, now notating whale songs, which is really cool. Just the average thing to Google. I know. Um, and I stumbled upon David Rothenberg, a clarinetist who has played with um, whale song in his albums. 
And in 09, um, he released a remix album of these whale songs with artists like DJ Spooky, Scanner, Lukash Ligeti, um, basically electronic artists from all fields. And it is cool, it is weird. I'm not gonna say I liked everything, but I was interested in everything. And we recommend it. Yes. It was, it's definitely worth listening to and really, it was, it was cool. Cool. Um, now we have something new. Something new. Okay. So our pick for something new is a podcast, actually. So there's this podcast called 20,000 Hertz, and it talks about sound design and sound. And one of their newer episodes is about the sound design of Disney parks. So like Disneyland, Disney World. And I just found that episode incredibly fascinating. Like, I love Disneyland, and I had no idea how much work went into crafting like the sonic worlds in Disneyland. So basically like, okay, if Disneyland if you've never been to Disneyland, just know there are certain um, lands like Adventureland, Fantasyland, Tomorrowland, and each one is completely themed differently. And what I kind of expected was, you know, all the music just pumps into each land like kind of abruptly kind of you go into one and it's you know this and then it's like fantasy and then it's space but actually the way they transition you between parks is so thought out because they don't want you to even realize that you are transitioning between parks so they'll just like first have like a little toucan noise as you go into Adventureland and then as you go deeper they'll like do some more jungle noises and as you and then by the time you're in there you're fully immersed i mean i just really respect Disneyland so much more now because I know how much attention. curated. Yeah, it's just, fa- and the way they place the mm-hmm. speakers in the rides is like, I mean, it's just incredibly precise just to make sure that if a bear is supposed to be singing, like your sa- your ear per- perceives that it's coming from the bear and not from the rock next to it. Like, it's just, it's incredible. Love it. Okay, something borrowed. Okay, this is an iPhone app called Clapping Music. So Clapping Music is a piece of music by a minimalist composer, Steve Reich, and it was written in 1972, performed entirely by clapping. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. The thing is, this piece of music has been turned into an iOS app, and it's set up like a game, like a really addictive game that, Thomas, you have played extensively. I have played. Love it. High score. (laughs) Yes, high score. Um, So basically, they teach you how to play the piece, but I swear it's really, really fun. So you just keep repeating the patterns, then you get to play the clapping on your iPhone. Um, You know, it's practice modes, there's game modes, levels, and more. I just think that's a really interesting um, borrowing or, you know, repurposing of a piece of minimalist music. It's awesome. And finally, Something Blue. Something Blue is mine this week, and my choice is Kid Koala's album 12-Bit Blues. This album came out in 2012, and I love Kid Koala. I know Kid Koala is amazing. A Canadian DJ. And this album is 100% samples, most of them, most of the samples, less than 10 seconds. But what's so cool about it is he used um, a device called a EMU SP1200 sampler, which is from 1987. It's the original OG hip hop sampler um, where you just load in samples and he did it all analog. There was no computer in making this album and it's so cool. Um, my favorite tracks are 11-bit blues and 2-bit blues and all the tracks are um, blues inspired like 
the, the style of blues. Mm-hmm. Super cool. Yeah, we're definitely going to put that in the show notes. I can't wait to re-listen to those. And again, if you want to see what we're talking about as well, don't worry. We've listed everything in the show notes. Also, we have a playlist for you that goes along with this episode. Sean collaborated with us and put together a really cool list of songs with metal and classical influences. And we'll have... We'll also have some of Sean's work in there. Exactly. And then all the songs we referenced today and some of our own extra recommendations that we think you'll like. So that does it for our inaugural episode of Underscore, the podcast that dives deep into the modern world of music from the musician's point of view. Thank you so much for joining us. We would really love to hear from you, so don't be shy. Join our Facebook group, Underscore Society, so you can nerd out with us, give us all your song picks, and learn more about the artists and ideas from the podcast. Once again, you've been listening to Underscore. I'm Chrysanthi Tan. I'm Thomas Kacha. And we look forward to seeing you next week.